All right. Good morning, church. Uh, am I? Good morning. There we are. I hear myself. It's great to gather together. It is always an honor to open God's Word together. And if you're joining us online, uh, wherever you are, welcome to you as well. Uh, as Anne just prayed, today is in an international day of prayer for the persecuted church. And it is estimated that roughly 360 million Christians face high levels of persecution and discrimination for their faith in Jesus. It's a lot of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I want to give us just a few snapshots of what this can look like. Uh, in, in Sudan, a young Muslim couple was married, but when the husband became a Christian, his wife's family forced them to get a divorce. And at this time, Leaving Islam was also potentially punishable by death. But then in 2020, that law was revoked and the couple was reunited. But recently, the wife also accepted Jesus. But when her family found out, they reported the couple and they were arrested under false charges of adultery. If they're found guilty, they could be charged with up to 100 lashes and a year in prison. It's a harsh reality. In Bangladesh, it's difficult to hold public worship services, especially baptisms. They don't tend to have nice tanks like we do. They often have to get out of their town or village and find a remote place. And recently, one, one church, anything I can do, Ronnie? Can you bring your around your This way? Is that better? Is that gonna, is that gonna be the trick, six inches? All right, we'll see. Um, a church held a baptism service for 45 Christians, but during the baptisms, neighbors came out and violently lashed out with words, sticks, and anything they could turn into weapons. Thankfully here, the police were called and stopped the violence, and they were allowed to finish the service. But in Sudan and many other places, police are involved in the persecution of Christians. Many countries have severe restrictions for the church. It can be illegal to meet or have any kind of Christian resources. Christians face discrimination, closure, closure of churches, torture, imprisonment, and even death for their faith in Christ. First Peter is written to churches like this. And while we don't tend to face open persecution for our faith in North Vancouver, many Christians are beginning to feel more ostracized and more like outsiders because of their faith. It's one of the reasons we've been reading First Peter, a letter to exiled Christians who were aliens and foreigners in their very homes. So even if you mildly feel like an outsider as a Christ follower, you need to know you are not alone. And this message from the Apostle Peter is for you, it's for us. So let's open to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 11 for our text this morning. You can read along with me, it'll be on the screen behind me. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans chose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel is preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. 
Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. I love it when the passage you're speaking on ends with an amen. It's a glorious ending, um, but this passage brought up a whole bunch of questions for me. What does Peter mean by that? So this morning, we're going to go through this passage verse by verse. We're going to look at some questions with an aim to gain some understanding and hopefully a little more clarity on how we can live for Jesus each and every day as the people of God in a society that's moving away from Christianity. Verse 1 begins with a therefore, which ties back to the previous passage we looked at last week in which Pastor Jeremy talked about how our suffering, even our suffering for doing what is right, is a way that we can identify with Jesus as the one who suffered for the good of the world. And as we identify with Jesus, we'll become more and more like him. And our passage today continues these themes of suffering and transformation. Verse 1, so therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Peter is encouraging his readers to be willing and ready to suffer for their faith in Christ. This military-like language indicates that discipline and grit are necessary and needed to live the Christian life, particularly in view of the suffering believers encounter. Like soldiers that prepare for battle, believers should prepare themselves for suffering. I think it's helpful to point out the Bible's realistic. Life isn't perfect here. It won't be on this side of Jesus' return. Different forms of suffering will come. People won't like us because of our faith. That's the way of the world. And Peter tells us to be ready so that we're not taken by surprise. To be clear, Peter isn't telling us to look for suffering or to look for persecution, but he says, be ready to stand firm when it does. And what he says next is surprising because whoever suffers in the body like Jesus is done with sin. Done with sin? I wish. What does Peter mean by that? What I believe he's getting at is this. If we're willing to suffer for our faith in Christ, then the allure of sin and temptation has lost its hold on us. The allure of sin has lost its hold on us. Practically, I think it makes sense. If you're so sold out for Jesus that you're willing to suffer and to lose out on things of this world, it just wouldn't make sense to go intentionally cheat your coworker out of money or to treat your family terribly or to spend hours slamming people on social media. Wouldn't make sense. Peter's point is not that believers who suffer attain sinless perfection, as if they do not sin at all after suffering, but the point of being done with sin means transformation is taking place, that we're being formed into the likeness of God, and when transformation is happening, we're able to see sin for what it truly is. Sin is a huge problem. It's the thing that's destroying our souls and the world we live in. So, in verse 2, as a result, we no longer live our lives the rest of our earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Our priorities are reordered under King Jesus. We live for God's will, his desires for us. What's God's will for us? I'm glad you asked. Verses 7 to 11 will give us some practical things, and we're going to get there in a little bit. But for now, God's will, first and foremost, is for us to be his children. 
We aren't called to something or to some idea. We are called to someone. God is alive and personal. We know that because he entered our humanity in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. God came to seek us out. He came to forgive us and save us for our sin. We're God's great rescue mission, and he wills us to repent of our sins and be in a renewed relationship with him, our creator. So, God's, so firstly, God's will is that we come to him. Secondly, the will of God for us is that we live for him, and with his help, he transforms us into his likeness. So our lives, our love, our devotion, our words, our character reflects Jesus's. For, as Peter says in verse two, verse three, you spend enough time in the past doing what the ungodly choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. Peter really goes after it here. Six different ways of saying excessive indulgence with sex and alcohol. Peter couldn't be clear. Getting drunk and sleeping with people who are not your spouse is out of line with God's will for your life. From earlier in the letter, verse, chapter 2, verse 11, these are clear examples of which wage war against your soul. I think it's probably important to note that in our modern culture and our modern media, they do a very good job of selling the idea that sex and alcohol in excess are a factor of living the good life. There's a strong narrative that we're maybe drawn to that says we can do anything and be anything we want as long as it doesn't hurt others. It's difficult not to feel the pull. And in the ancient world, it wasn't that much different. Peter gets this too. But he knows the dangers of a life without, a, without restraint. And is anyone asking these questions? Is our sexual freedom and overuse of alcohol leading to more or less human flourishing? Is it making us better or worse at loving others? Is our mental health getting better? And are we happier as a society? Well, happiness levels have been decreasing steadily in the US since the 60s, which was the beginning of the sexual revolution in which divorce, divorce rates began to climb. I know correlation doesn't necessarily mean it's the cause or the only factor, but it is an interesting coincidence. There's also some new research out on attachment theory relating to divorce. Divorce affects people of all ages, and what the research is showing, divorce is directly tied to the number of people who struggle to develop intimate, healthy relationships in adulthood. One of the ways we see this working out is more people are choosing to cohabitate before marriage. But for those who live together before marriage, they're less likely to marry, more likely to get a divorce if they do, and often develop long-term trust issues. Other cultural issues include pornography addiction. It's at an all-time high and it's becoming more violent, misogynistic, and cruel while intentionally targeting children. The average age to first exposure is down between seven and nine years of age. So parents and grandparents, we need to be diligent in these matters. And along those lines, while the Me Too movement was all over the news, the hit trilogy, Fifty Shades of Grey, a story about male sexual domination, became the highest selling book series of the decade and one of the highest grossing film franchises of all time. It's ironic. And these pornographic narratives are forming our young people's idea about what sexuality is and what it's for. Selfish, personal pleasure without commitment, no matter the cost or hurt to others. This kind of sexual freedom is leaving a wake of confusion, brokenness, sorrow, shame, 
and sadness. God created sex. He called it good. And when sex is kept in its God-given context of marriage, sex bonds a couple together at a chemical and hormonal level, and it has the amazing power to bring new life. And when it's kept in an exclusive marriage relationship, it's a wonderful gift made to share with one person only so that no one else has had that experience with your spouse. An exclusive bond that's a picture of the covenantal love of God to his people. This is part of the vision that the Bible lays out. Pastor Tim Keller says, Sex is a God-invented way to say to another person, I belong completely, exclusively, and permanently to you didn't have a picture for this slide. But I want to give us a quick pastoral word. As Christians, all of our desires need to be reordered under the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was the only one able to live a life of complete purity. So therefore, every person in this room has varying degrees of regret, pain, and sin in this area. But there's good news. Jesus takes our sin and our shame. He removes it. He takes it away. And in his name, there is forgiveness and grace and healing. We all need it. So let's ask for it and work towards it. And then there's this business of getting drunk. If drunkenness is a regular part of your life, you got to ask yourself, is excess drinking making me a better person, a better friend, a better spouse, a better parent? Is it helping me at work? Is it helping me achieve my overall life goals? I think these questions are worth pondering. I'm not advocating for prohibition here, but drinking in excess does not bring about the best in humanity. And Jesus wants to restore our whole selves, body, mind, and spirit. This kind of living is countercultural. So when those outside the church wonder why we're not partaking in all of their debauchery, they're surprised. They don't get it. At first they make fun of you, then maybe they shun you. Many of our teens certainly experience this in their high schools. Then Peter says to the church in Asia Minor, they heap abuse on you. They're calling you the evil ones. But Peter says in verse 5, they may heap abuse on you, but they will have to face divine judgment. Every human being will stand before God and give an account for their life. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as people are destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will, appear, he will appear a second time not to bear sin, he already did that, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Likewise, Peter is encouraging the church, and he's saying, even if Christians are condemned in the human courtroom, their accusers does not have the final word. God does. God brings the final judgment. And for the Christian, God's judgment has already fallen upon God the Son on the cross. It's the good news of the gospel. The judgment that I deserve for my sin was taken by Jesus in his body to death on the cross. It's what 1 Peter 2.24, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. This is important to keep in mind as we come to the very confusing verse 6. So hold 2.24 in your mind as we read this next verse. For this is the reason, judgment day is coming, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. First, I think we can acknowledge that there's some mystery here. 
Of course there is. God is infinite. We are finite. We can't know and understand everything, and that's okay. So here's my take on verse 6 with that in mind. I think it's a twofold meaning. The first is theological. But before someone comes to faith in Christ, they're dead in their sin. It's what the biblical letters to the Ephesians says. But when they hear the gospel and believe it, they die to sin. Their sinful nature is buried with Christ. This is their judgment. And then, by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit, they're raised to new life in Jesus. The Christian receives a spiritual rebirth, as John chapter 3 says, born again in the Spirit. So the first meaning is theologically centered on the gospel, the good news about Jesus our Savior who brings sinful, spiritually dead humanity to new life. Peter comes back to the cross again and again and again and again. Jesus is so central. So secondly, even though Christians die physically, as some already have, their spirits live in the presence of Jesus. And when Jesus returns, we'll be bodily resurrected and made new. Physical death is not the last word for believers. The gospel promises that they will ultimately be raised from the dead. This, this is the reason Peter is talking about. We have an eternal hope. So even if we're condemned by the world, we will live eternally with Jesus in the new creation. And that is good news and a great encouragement to Christians who are suffering for their faith. It's what keeps the persecuted church going strong. And this eternal hope is part of the story that God is writing. It's part of the story that he's inviting all of us into. God is renewing humanity, and one day God will renew and restore all things at the return of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's a good word. So this first section was focused on how sin and suffering are connected and how we interact with the hostile world. And now, Peter focuses on how we are to live with one another within the church community. And this is especially important when we feel the pressure from the outside world. So we can put on a little bit of cruise control now and have a look at what this looks like in the here and now. There's a future eternal hope, but what do we do in the meantime? So let's check out verse 7. The end of all things is near, or as other translations say, at hand. When the Bible talks about end times, it doesn't mean we should start doomsday predictions. Instead, think of it as an encouragement to live in a godly way. So verse 7, therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you can pray. Give your full attention to God through prayer. Now a little over a month ago, uh, my family got our first pet, a crested gecko, uh, whose name is Spike. And this little guy loves to eat crickets. It was kind of funny when he got him, they said, you just need this powder, you stir it up into a paste, and he'll eat that. You don't have to feed it live crickets, so he's super easy and low maintenance. But then when we sprayed, uh, you have to spray the cage every day, give it some humidity, and a droplet of water fell, and he looked at it, and he like lunged on the side of the cage. I was like, this dude wants to eat crickets. And so sure enough, uh, this is his second cricket he ever ate. There he is. We got the discount gecko with no tail. It's the one my boys wanted. Um, he loves hunting. And as soon as he sees a cricket move, you can tell his whole body becomes fully devoted in complete focus to chowing down on a cricket. And Peter tells us to do likewise, but focused on prayer, on our relationship with Jesus and how it can infiltrate every area of our life. This can tie back into verse 3. If our thoughts are dominated by lust, greed, or drunkenness, we're unable to give our attention to the things that matter. But what else can keep us from being alert and sober-minded? 
It's the second of three times that Peter tells us to be alert and sober in this message. The last time in chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Be alert and sober because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. What if one of the main strategies of the devil right now to keep us from walking with Jesus is simply distraction? Satan's strategy for keeping us from Jesus is distraction. If he can keep us from praying, from reading the Bible, from church, from engaging with others, he can keep us from our relationship with Jesus. I think he's quite happy to have us endlessly consume media in all forms. And literally, we can consume media nonstop, 24 hours a day. In 1980, it was said that the average man watched four hours of TV a day, meaning that he would spend 10 years of his life in front of a screen. Well, 40 years later, four hours a day is not the average. Depending where you look and what demographic you're in, seven to 10 hours a day. It's a lot of our life in front of a screen. And this is besides work. I would say COVID has made our screen addictions far worse. Two weeks ago, I deleted YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram off my phone for this very reason. I lost my ability to control myself, endlessly scrolling at times. I needed to take some action. And I think it's probably safe to say that we could all be a little more aggressive in cutting out screen time and increasing our time for spiritual practices and face-to-face time with those we love the most. So I challenge you, erase some apps, get serious, cut some screen time out of your life. It will be better for you, for your prayer life, and for your relationship to others. It's kind of where Peter goes next in verse 8. He says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Love deeply. This is at the core of God's will for us, for humanity. But what does Peter mean by love covers over a multitude of sins? It's not that human love can offer salvation. Only Jesus can do that. But our love is to be directed towards others. And when we love well, we're more willing to offer forgiveness. And in this way, we can restore relationships. And so instead of using sin of others as a springboard to attack them, we can restore relationship. And things go sideways in human relationships. It's part of the reality of living in a sinful world. But we're called to abandon the old ways of always needing to get even. And we're called to learn Jesus' new way of self-giving love. And by extending the gift of love and forgiveness to others, we can live and work together instead of squabbling and fighting and causing more division. And this includes offering hospitality, joyfully using what resources you have to share with others. And to the persecuted church, hospitality is vitally important because sometimes you have to flee your house or your town and lodging becomes a lifeline. In the first century, church was generally really good at hosting one another, and it sometimes included people on the run or traveling preachers. And Peter says, do it without grumbling. Jesus says you might even host angels without knowing it. And I think a great more modern day example of this was the Underground Railroad. People would use their homes and barns illegally to hide, feed, and house slaves that were escaping and running towards freedom. These hospitable networks helped them get to freedom. The movie Harriet, the story of Harriet Tubman, is a really great film that portrays this well. So if you're looking for a good movie to watch, one that's not just a distraction as you wean yourself off of your screen time, I recommend it. It's highly inspirational. 
And finally, Peter encourages the church to faithfully use whatever gifts they have to serve others well. Gifts of speaking include preaching and teaching, prophecy and words of wisdom and encouragement. Church, speak life. Let us use our words to bless. It's so easy to curse others. So let's be different. Let's intentionally find ways to encourage others every day. Gifts of service, they include hospitality, administration, generosity, healing, and leadership. Do this with great joy and with the energy that the Lord provides for you. These gifts are here to serve and build up the church, not so we look good, but for God to look good, so that he's praised by our actions in every faucet of our lives. So how can we be done with sin? Arm yourselves with the will to stand firm, both feet planted firmly firmly on the gospel of Jesus. Put aside your sinful desires. Reorder your desires under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Pray with a focused and clear mind. Love deeply. Offer hospitality and use your gifts to serve one another. I'm going to pray for us. I'll invite the worship team to come on out. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. God, there's a lot of hard things in this world we live in. God, it's hard to think about suffering for our faith or being persecuted because we love Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray for this congregation that we would will to stand firm, that we would be ready. God, help us to stay faithful to you, our only hope for salvation, Jesus. And Lord, for those who need forgiveness, God, I pray that we would come and ask for your forgiveness. God, we thank you that you give it. God, for those who need healing in these areas, God, I pray for healing, that you would restore us body, mind, and soul. God, continue to transform us from the inside out, that we could look more and more like you, Jesus, every day. It's hard. It's hard work. It's not easy. God, help us to be up for the task. God, I pray that we as a church would not be distracted, but that we would be able to turn our attention to you in our daily lives that we would pray, that we would love well, that we would be hospitable. God, I pray that we would generously use the gifts that you've given us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Two songs, there's gonna be two teams of prayer ministers, so if anything in the message sparked something in you that you would like prayer for, uh, we have Val and Janice, who will be over there by the exit sign. And then in the balcony, we'll have Wendy and Craig, Tim. I believe they'll be up over there by that window in the back.